Mike Global IQ is 109. 100. 145. 122. Welcome. That's a Texas welcome. That's a real Texas welcome. <laughs> You've been to Texas quite a bit on this book tour, haven't you? I think this is my fifth visit. I have visited this state more than any other part of the United States on my book tour. There you go. And I'm told that as goes Texas, so goes the nation. Um, there have been some changes here in the last few months. Yeah, things are happening in Texas, I gather. Um, no, it's been amazing. Just the intensity of the welcome has been beautiful, so I'm really grateful. Well, congratulations on your book. There's a holiday, lots of holidays coming up soon. <laughs> For the fact, idealist in your life. <laughs> so, you know, when I looked at your calendar, your schedule for this book tour, I have to say, Ambassador, it was one of the most ambitious I have seen. You just came back from Dublin. I did, Dublin, Ireland. And that's your home. It is my one of your my homes. original home. Yes, uh, definitely. I came to America when I was nine, but yes, I was there, and it was different, right? The focus, of course, above all, is on Brexit, and the secondary focus is on impeachment. <laughs> Go figure. Um, before we begin the substance of our discussion, may I congratulate you? Uh, because I little bird. Birdie told me that the World Affairs Council in Dallas has been named the number one World Affairs Council in the country. So congrats. Thank you. Thank you very much. You. That's pretty awesome. So I'm sure people expected you to give them the answer on the inquiry about the impeachment. What did you say and what was the feeling you were getting? I was there before the public portion of the process had begun, and but already it was interesting. There was, on the one hand, a, a puzzlement. You know, again, remember that they're not as steeped in the ins and outs as some people in this country, and, and their media is not as saturated with it, although it's a very present feature of the Irish, and I was in the UK as well, the British media. So on the one hand, there there's a kind of puzzlement and confusion, as to how it can be that nothing seems to make a difference, <laughs> no matter what. You know, that Lester Holt scene on Saturday Night Live, where he's like, so you're saying you fired Comey because he was investigating you? That you're saying, you're, you're telling me that? And the, the Alec Baldwin character playing Donald Trump is like, yeah, that's why I fired him, because I didn't want him to investigate me. And he's like, you're admitting to obstruction of justice? Yeah, well, that's why I fired him, of course. And then, Lester Holt in the skit, you know, hears from his producer, what, what, what do you mean? Nothing matters? <laughs> what, nothing matters? Anyway, so that sense that nothing matters, at least for the people who are defending Trump, is very concerning. You get a lot of questions about that. On the other hand, the already, even before the public testimony, the reminder through this parade of national security, diplomats, intelligence professionals, civil servants, and, and again, because all that people would have had when I was there was the written testimony, but nonetheless, the knowledge that so many people within our institutions are holding faith with the rule of law, with a larger conception of US interests, with a conception of alliances and what they mean 
with a recognition of the need to stand up to aggression, a form of Russian aggression. And so this last period, in a funny way, has, has exposed the kind of underbelly of the, I think, the debasement and the corruption, but it has also exposed what is also a feature of these last few years, which is the resiliency of our institutions, the determination of so many Americans to just stay the course and, and still, again, put principle above one's own personal fortunes. And so people were very, very struck by that. And I su suspect even more so this week, but I'm not there to witness that. I wonder how this is gonna play out because applications for the Foreign Service exam, I was shocked to learn, are down 40%. And yet now people are really beginning to see some of the best officers that we have, and it may encourage people to join the service. That's a great, that's just a great point. I, I mean, all I can speak to is the people that I used to work with, and I should note, especially because we're here in Texas, that the foreign service officers, the diplomats, the civil service officers, intelligence officials who staffed the U.S. mission to the U.N. or who staffed me when I was working at the White House had staffed George W. Bush, right? We, we came in in January 2009. They were all George W. Bush holdovers, if you want to look at it that way. We never thought of it that way. But um, what this, this week um, and last week have done is that they have given these hearings have given these individuals their voice. And one thing that just struck me actually today, because everything is related to everything else, uh, back to Texas and why voting matters and turnout matters and why political engagement matters. But if it weren't for the turnout in the 2018 election and the swing in the House, there would be no impeachment process. If there were no impeachment process, Masha Yovanovitch, George Kent, Bill Taylor, we, certainly we wouldn't have ever heard from them in public testimony, but Masha in particular, in listening to her when she said, absolutely the president gets to replace his ambassador if he sees fit, I serve at the pleasure of the president, that's true, but why did he have to vilify me? Why did he have to come after me personally over a disagreement on a matter of principle or a matter of substance? Her voice would never have been heard but for the turnout and but for the determination of Americans to have a check and balance at a time when every branch of government was controlled by one party. And so it's also really heartening, I think, to see that yes, I think people will be drawn to being part of a profession where there is such integrity, plain spokenness, principle. You could see this even with the Republicans, most of the Republicans who were questioning the witnesses is they were very adamant about defending Trump and say, saying it wasn't impeachable and all the rest but they weren't really, as it were, impeaching the, the conduct or the integrity of the witnesses. It was impossible, you couldn't. Uh, I mean, what are you gonna do, you know, challenge Bill Taylor and his patriotism after the career that he has lived? So there's that, but it also, if you think about it, sort of broaden the aperture, it's all of the acts of patriotism and faith that Americans at a grassroots level had to exercise in order to even put those individuals in a position where their voices would be resonant in our democracy. And so I think everybody should feel good about it, not just people who are now seeing the world of foreign service and diplomacy opened up in a beautiful way. So the soundbite is, is that the State Department has been hollowed out. It seems to me it's hemorrhaging. Let's assume, as you wish, that a Democrat wins in the next presidential election. What are the steps that the United States needs to take to regain um, sort of leadership that some would argue that we've left a vacuum. When you look at the TPP, the Paris Climate Accord, 
go situation. on. Yeah, go, go on. <laughs> I could go on. Yes. The first thing I'd say is, especially for the young people who are here or those who are parents or friends with young people, apply for the Foreign Service. You know, by the time you're in a position where you're out of the visa stamping business and in a substantive role, there will have been change. We will be in the course of trying to right the ship of American diplomacy for sure. And you know, again, I hope that's in January 2021 or sooner, but if it's not then, still there's some startup costs to becoming a diplomat. And so go ahead and get those out of the way. Moreover, for young diplomats, and for diplomats of any age or seniority, there are huge parts of the world that are not caught up in some of the degradation and the sort of personalization of foreign policy where we haven't turned our back on prior commitments. They're low-grade commitments. They're not high-profile commitments. They're issues that haven't gotten the attention of the president. But the, my point is, as we saw even through these hearings, diplomats are doing really important work even as we speak, even as it happens at the same time on the really big flagship American commitments and on some of the most urgent and important issues, we've walked away from our commitments. On the morning after, um, I think it is a call um, to all hands on deck. I think former Bush administration, George W. Bush administration officials, Obama administration officials, young people who've been active in any one of the campaigns who want to serve, I think there will be an all hands on deck appeal to people to come into government. I think usually, maybe I'm naive here, this may reveal that I'm still naive despite um, having been around the block. Part of me thinks that the scrum for jobs that is always a kind of unseemly part of political transitions, I write about it a little bit in the book. I certainly gave me the heebie-jeebies um, between Obama's election, which was like the greatest night, already by the next morning, you know, it was just, you know, kind of maneuvering and I had no idea how to maneuver. I'm sure I would have, hated it less if I were better at it. But nonetheless, just waiting for the phone to ring and who's gonna be here, there, everywhere. This is my naive comment for the night, but somehow I think that there's not gonna be as much of that. I think that people want to be a part of the recovery of America's standing and want to be part of restoring our alliances, restoring our credibility. So there's that, who's coming in. Then unfortunately, and this is where voting matters so much on the downstream elections as well, or down ballot elections, Congress is going to be needed also to, to facilitate a rebuilding of the Foreign Service and the diplomatic corps. And the truth is this can be an opportunity to make our diplomatic apparatus more fit for purpose, more of a 21st century diplomatic corps, drawing people from the business world or from you know, the engineering world or from energy business or the environmental business, uh, trade lawyers, you know, bringing people with a, a vast array of skills into comprising these positions. So we, we don't just look for people who've been groomed to be, you know, diplomats, capital D their whole lives, but people, you know, my path is untraditional, bringing a background as somebody who'd been out in the field and had been an activist and understood some of the human consequences of US decision making, turns out you can, you can learn the specifics, a lot of the specifics uh, on the fly, but we're gonna need Congress's help uh, in order to, to loosen up the hiring procedures and also to bring back people who have fled in these last few years who didn't feel like their expertise was valued. I'd still wanna bring back our Arabic speakers and our Mandarin speakers and our sanctions experts. And so there are plenty of people who just uh, ended up feeling that there wasn't a place for them, but who would love to serve their countries again. 
for a very long time the position of UN ambassador had cabinet level, and that's certainly not the case now with Ambassador Kraft. How has that impacted the way the United States is perceived at the UN? On the list of things that have hurt America's standing at the UN, I would, I would rate that, you know, not that important. I mean, I know Ambassador Haley is coming to speak here, I think, in a few days. Credit her in her negotiation with President Trump. You know, she said, I'm only going to take the job. I'm only going to, you know, leave South Carolina and, and come to New York if you give me the cabinet rank. So she actually had it. By the time, you know, Kelly Kraft had come along, there'd been almost a year-long vacancy between Ambassador Haley and Kelly Kraft. So people don't need to be reminded of how sort of degraded this administration's relationship with the UN is, um, just the vacancy, the lack of prioritization. So it sort of formalized what's already been made clear by the cuts to UN funding, by turning our back on agreements that have been done using UN processes like the Paris Climate Agreement. So, I, you know, it should be a cabinet rank position. It's an incredibly important position. It's the only position in the US government where an individual has the opportunity to gather on any given day country, countries, representatives of countries from all over the world. And given that the problems of the world cross borders and require you know, transnational solutions, often solutions that even cross regions, so you can't just go to a NATO meeting or an ASEAN meeting you know, for, to meet with Asian countries, but you might need some countries from Asia, some from Latin America, and the, the UN is just, it's such a, an important stage to get the work of America done. We're gonna jump around a little bit because I know all of you are gonna read the book and one of the things that I found so interesting was the relationship and friendship that you built with Senator Obama, later president, and I really felt that in a sense, you and he grew together intellectually as you approached the, the world, you were his sounding board. And I'd like for you to tell the audience about how you first met him and then the courage it took to sort of say, hey, I'd like to work for you. In 2004, had, uh, I've been apolitical for most of my life, but then in my early 20s, I became a war correspondent in Bosnia, the story's all in there. And when I came back, I began work on a paper for a class, I'd gone to law school, and that paper ballooned into a five-year research project, which became my first book, A Problem From Hell. So in writing A Problem From Hell and in being active, as some of you I'm sure were, on the Darfur, the Save Darfur movement in 2003, to that, I guess I started mainly in 2004, 2005, I started to become more political and more, it was clear to me after the invasion of Iraq that the Bush administration succumbed to a lot of the public pressure and, and did more on Darfur than one would have expected given how distracted they were with all that was going wrong in Iraq. But U.S. credibility was not what it needed to be to be building global coalitions to try to really press the Sudanese government to cease and desist what it was doing or to hold anybody accountable. And so in recognizing that, I became more political. I, I canvassed for John Kerry in a plucky way in Broward County, Florida. Thought we were going to campaign for which I was working, was going to win. Um, had one of those election nights I now feel like I have every five minutes where the early exit polls are fantastic and then it was a... <laughs> like the rest of the night is downward uh, trajectory. But the bright light, of course, of that election in 2004 was Barack Obama, but I did not know him. I had seen him, like everybody, giving this unifying convention speech. 
just taken the stage, and I just was, I just thought, oh my goodness, like, who is this person? And so that was my first exposure to him. I went and got his Dreams of My Father, and then lo and behold, I knew somebody who knew somebody who knew him, and he told me as I was mourning uh, John Kerry's loss, uh, the sort of week after the election in November of 2004, he said, I can get your book to him, and I said, I okay. I don't, can't imagine that the guy who gave that speech is gonna be interested in my 600-page book on genocide, but sure, uh, why not? <laughs> Hope springs eternal. And lo and behold, in early 2005, I got an email from his scheduler asking if I would have dinner with the first-term senator the next time I was in Washington. So I was like, well, I happen to be there, uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> next week. Uh, and so I went, you know, thinking, this is really interesting that he reaches out after engaging this material of all material at this time. And interestingly, he saw the invasion of Iraq, which he had opposed, and my work on things like the response to the Rwandan genocide as kind of flip sides of the same coin in a way that was sort of, I thought, insightful and not common in insofar as both were examples of neglecting Again, the human effects of non-decision making and of very dramatic decisions like the decision to invade Iraq. And so we had this dinner. He kind of probed my biography in a way that I was not prepared for. You know, I was used to, some of you probably do this as well, when you're telling your story, where you come from, why are you interested in what you do, how'd you meet your husband? Whatever your thing is, you have a shorthand way of describing it. And, and so I'd, he'd say, so you're from Ireland originally? I'd say, yeah. I said, I'd say, you know, yeah, you know, my mother decided to come, you know, because she wanted to pursue her medical career. So she had to come to America. They don't have doctors in Ireland, you know. And <laughs> we're like, well, there was no divorce in Ireland. Oh, divorce. And so your mother, why does coming to America help you get divorced in Ireland? Like, like, and I'm like. Details, details. Like, I'm just trying to get through it so we can talk about you and what you're going to do in the world. And he just wouldn't let me. And so there's that kind of quality of attention that it ended up being about four hours. <laughs> and as probably the women, with all respect, can identify with more than, more than the men in the audience, although I, I, I hate to generalize in those way, gendered ways. But so the whole dinner, I'm like, as it just gets better and better, and, and he's more and more interesting on foreign policy, even though he's also kind of new and fresh and figuring it out and had been a state senator most recently in Illinois. And so the whole, I'm thinking, I'd really like to sort of volunteer my services to come and work in his office, but that would sound so jerky and presumptuous <laughs> and ridiculous. Like what, I'm an activist and a journalist kind of, and, and I'm a genocide scholar and that's kind of a narrow, and so the whole dinner, I'm like, uh, and then, and I'm not, and I'm not, and I'm not. And so I do, I tell the story in the book of finally we're on the sidewalk and he's about to get into his car and the engine is running. So like, How would you like it if I came to your office and, and possibly I could intern, you don't have to pay me. You know, I sort of blurted it out and he's, you know, was kind of overwhelmed. But anyway, I did that and I worked in his Senate office and uh, the, the rest was history. While you've had remarkable achievements you did have a few bumps in the road, and when I was doing some research, I happened, you know, Google does create problems. You were once quoted in The Scotsman. Tell the audience about how that happened, what mistake you made so that you were quoted in The Scotsman, 
and how that was uh, a rough period of time for you. Yeah, I mean, maybe I should say just a word about the, the book. You know, I think government memoirs, there are many uh, versions on the theme, but often they're sort of defenses of one's policy positions or of what one's administration has been part of. And mine, I suppose, has some of that at least grappling with things that I had favored and, and also paths not taken. And so there's, there's some of that in this book. But mainly, it's, it's a very personal account of, that has foreign policy as part of it, because that's been my milieu. But it's basically about the sort of larger, more universal set of questions that I think people have about, you know, on the one hand, how one feels drawn to trying to, quote, do something in the face of terribleness or injustice. On the other hand, how one very quickly can feel quite small next to the problems that confront us, especially today, but I've felt that at many stages of my life. Um, and so open up my, my childhood, my, my early 20s, the various crossroads that I'm at and the doubts I have, I call my head the bat cave, <laughs> where there are bats flying around and getting in the way of me, you know, sort of pursuing what it is that on paper it feels should be propelling me forward. And I also describe, you know, some pretty public humiliations. And so, again, the, there are many parts of the book that you normally, I think, would avoid rehashing if, if, if you're looking to kind of burnish your credentials. In my case, particularly for young people, I want to show what it's like. And what it's like is often difficult. And yet, it's so worth it. And so, go figure. And, and even if what you do is small, it's more than doing nothing. And so, I'm also showing how small things can add up, I think, in important ways. And, and even how mistakes, how one can, of course, learn from them, but also just somehow pull oneself off the ground. So, back to your actual question. So I was working, I had been in the Senate, I was working then on the Obama campaign. I was flying really close to the sun. I was basically, it was the, the Icarus phase of my, my career for sure. But unfortunately, as with Icarus, I didn't know it. I didn't know that I was about to get singed in a, in a profound way. But I, my second book had just come out. It was being well-received. I had just, and I describe a lot about my romantic foibles in the book as well. Uh, but in this rare instance, I was dating somebody wonderful who I'd met on the Obama campaign, uh, Cass Sunstein, to whom I'm now married and have two children. That was going well. Obama was kind of acting as matchmaker every time I was on the verge of screwing it up. He'd be like, no, 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 no. Um, and sort of pull me back from the brink, which I write about. You, that side of Obama you probably haven't seen, the, that of romantic counselor in chief. Um, yeah. He was your sounding board too. <laughs> yeah, exactly, a sounding board of a different kind. So everything was going swimmingly such that I decided to leave the campaign just for a week, go to England, launch the book in England, and then, and this was to be the great homecoming, because I left, I'd left and emigrated from Ireland as a nine-year-old girl. I've been back, of course, many times, but this was to be my true homecoming because I was advising Obama and he was, uh, had pulled ahead of Senator Clinton in the primary campaign and everything was going great. I arrive in Ireland and I get a text from Bono 
And uh, you know, what's funny is when, I, when this, this story is in the book and young people are like, who? <laughs> <laughs> so for those of you, since I know we have some students from this very school here, Bono's a rock star <laughs> from the country of Ireland, from which I hail, and he didn't text me every day. This yeah. is the first time he'd ever text me. And he wanted to meet me for a drink. And I was like, all right, this is like the ultimate for me to go and get to have a drink with Bono, because of course he's interested <laughs> in Obama. So we sit down, he brings Brian Eno, a well-known music producer, and everything's great. And then my phone rings, and it's the campaign. And I've, I've just arrived that morning from England. And the campaign says, did you say the following things about Hillary Clinton while you were in England? And they read me these things, and I said, no, I didn't, there's no way I said those things. It's absolutely impossible, because I don't feel any of those, I don't believe any of those things. Hillary Clinton's amazing. I'm for Barack Obama in this race. I think Barack Obama has a better chance in the general for these reasons, but she's amazing. No, of course I didn't say these things. And they're like, okay, we'll demand a retraction. And then Brian Eno, like of all people, <laughs> After I hung up, said, are you sure you didn't say those <laughs> things? And I said, no, I couldn't have said, I don't think any of those things. That's crazy. You didn't lose your temper at any point while you were in England. Nothing happened. So, and then I was like, oh, my God, wait. So a friend of mine had called from the Obama campaign, Austin Goolsby, who some of you know, the Obama's economics advisor. And he had called because the Clinton campaign was taking out attack ads that featured Austin and they were attack ads about Obama's trade policy, but they were very personal, I thought, and I was very green and very enraged and shocked, shocked that there would be attack ads on the campaign, and so the call had come, exactly, the call had come while I was wrapping up an interview, and so when the call finished and I came back all heated, I didn't notice that the tape recorder was still out. I thought the interview was over and I just went, I know. But I, then I noticed and I was like, this is off the record, but I had already kind of said all these terrible things. And so in a chapter called Monster, you can read about what it was like to Google yourself, which I never recommend, and for there to be like 10 hits and then to hit refresh you know, a couple minutes later, there to be about a hundred, and then about ten minutes later, for there to be a thousand, and then to suddenly see your name, a bunch of like what looked to be Chinese characters, and then the word monster, <laughs> and then to see it in Urdu and Pakistan, and it was, it just uh, exploded, and so within 24 hours, I had to resign the campaign, and it was, it was, I was so sad, because I loved the campaign, much more than the Senate office or my journalism and just the insurgent spirit of it and the team and so I had to quit. But you were rehabilitated I and was brought back. As it happens. But okay, that's so the other lesson, right, for people is that nothing, I mean, hopefully anyway, you know, nothing is, is forever and just if you, if, if it's not a, a reflection of your character and not something that you are prone to do again and again, if you're capable of learning that you, if you're lucky you can claw your way back. Just this week, Senator Graham said that he would not put before the Senate a vote on the bill about whether or not Turkey should uh, claim a responsibility for the slaughter of 1.5 million Armenians in 1915. And as you wrote in the New York Times just a few weeks ago, you were very pleased that the House had voted overwhelmingly. Why do you think that the Senate did not put this poor vote 
I think the issue matters, it certainly matters to Armenian Americans a great deal, but I think it matters in a bigger way because I think in general we should tell the truth as a sort of golden rule. This, you know, generally in terms of geopolitics, the things you teach your kids are actually the things that if you embodied them in your foreign policy, I think it's adaptive, you do better over time. Um, but let me also say with humility that we, I'm in no glass house on this issue because we, the Obama administration, and we who campaigned on Obama's behalf before he became president committed to recognizing the Armenian genocide. And uh, when push came to shove and Obama had been elected and he had to, he was in the midst of trying to initially pull us out of, of course, a very difficult economic time. I mean, just hemorrhaging jobs and so forth, trying to draw our troops down from Iraq. There's always something, right? And when you're the president, there's always a, a set of competing considerations but notwithstanding my appeals to him, which I write about in the book, notwithstanding the fact that my water broke, uh, while I argued with him about the Armenian genocide, <laughs> and thus notwithstanding the fact that my son Declan was born on Armenian Genocide Remembrance Day uh, a month early because of the stress of this uh, policy dispute, we did not for eight years recognize the genocide. And so, stipulate that again, I, I And it had bring, been I, a campaign promise, was I, that right? It was a campaign promise and it was something, I made a video on the campaign drawing on my work on genocide, my credibility with Armenian Americans and said, every other president promises they're going to do this. Obama has promised he's different. He's not like other politicians, he will do it. And in the end, over eight years, we didn't do it. So no uh, glass house on this issue, but the House did it finally, and this was um, the first time in decades that we, the, any body or sub-body, sub-branch of the U.S. government had recognized the genocide, and Erdogan, the president of Turkey, who was very erratic and very dictatorial in his longings, if, if occasionally constrained uh, by some of the politics inside Turkey, but he took a visit to the White House um, after having launched this campaign of ethnic cleansing against the forces who on our behalf defeated ISIS in Syria, who took 11,000, uh, suffered 11,000 fatalities in the course of defeating ISIS on our behalf. So Erdogan was inexplicably invited to the White House having launched that campaign. And then Trump uh, did something very unconventional. It will shock you that he did something unconventional, but in this case, it's actually something I think more presidents probably should do, which is he brought members of Congress, including Senator Lindsey Graham, into the meeting with Erdogan, and on Erdogan's behalf, Trump put huge pressure, I don't think it takes with Lindsey Graham, huge pressure, unfortunately, uh, but nonetheless asked Lindsey Graham to put a hold on what should have been a straightforward Senate bill to mirror the House bill. And let me note just that since nothing in Washington seems to happen on a bipartisan basis, the Senate bill was co-sponsored by Ted Cruz, Senator here in Texas, and uh, Senator Menendez from New Jersey. And notwithstanding that uh, Graham, who was allegedly the Syrian Kurdish defender basically succumbed uh, at the first peep out of Erdogan and Trump. And it's, cr it's just crushing. And Senator um, Cruz was in the Oval Office at that meeting. That's interesting. And so I don't know the, I haven't actually seen, you know, the scuttlebutt on that as to whether Cruz 
also was was persuaded. And so I don't mean to give Cruz too much or too little credit. I don't know what his position is, but he had co-sponsored the bill, and I had understood that they were pushing McConnell to get a vote. Thank you for listening to Global IQ with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council at Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. Special thanks to my producers, Kara Sheckman and Kayla Smith. And with that, as always, I ask, what's your Global IQ?